Welcome to Love Your Library with Hampshire Libraries. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy here as always with my co-host Mary Stone. Hi Mary. Hello Kate. This episode comes to you from Andover Library in the northern part of Hampshire. As with all our podcasts, we'll be starting with a guest interview, which this month is performer, screenwriter and novelist Charlie Higson. Then we'll be talking to staff here at the library in Andover who've got book recommendations they'd like to share. This title's episode is inspired by the annual library summer reading challenge, which is all about encouraging primary school children to visit the library and keep up their reading skills. 26,000 children took part in Hampshire last year and we hope we'll have just as many again this summer. Our guest, Charlie Higson, is a keen supporter of the reading agency who help organise the annual challenge. Kate, would you like to tell our listeners a bit more about him? Charlie Higson is an actor, scriptwriter, director and, of course, the co-creator of The Path Show. But most importantly to us, he's the writer of the brilliant young adult horror series The Enemy and the creator of the Young James Bond series of books for which personally I'd like to thank him for helping turn my son into the keen reader he is today. And as you say, Charlie is also a great supporter of the Reading Agency and the Summer Reading Challenge. Here he is talking to me about how he got involved in writing his James Bond series. My editor, who had worked on my four crime books in the early 90s, ended up working for the Ian Fleming estate. And she approached me. She knew, obviously knew my writing and the the crime books I'd written, I was a big fan of sort of quite stripped back American hard-boiled crime fiction. So the, the, the writing was quite direct and unflowery. And the Inflaming Estate had an idea to, to do a series about young James Bond. So we talked about the idea. I, I, I said how I would go about it and they, they were in agreement. So I, I got the job, which was fantastic. I wrote five of those young James Bond books, which was just huge fun. Yeah, you must have had to have done so much research and planning between for each one and to have kept the sort of vivid and pacey language that uh, this is so works so well in the Ian Fleming originals. Yes, well, that was, was the first research I had to do, which was very painless, which was rereading all of Ian Fleming's books and, and trying to sort of get inside his head a bit and understand how his books worked and, and, and what was so exciting about them. And um, also to try and find any information about James Bond's younger life, of which there is very little. In the books, James Bond is basically off on an adventure the whole time and he doesn't stop to think too much about his his childhood and the reader isn't overburdened with, with backstory. But also, because the books were set in the 1930s, I, I did have to do a lot of research into the era, particularly um, the fact that James Bond went to Eton College, which is one of the strangest schools in the country, and back in the 1930s was even stranger. So trying to understand how on earth the school worked was very complex. But then putting that into a whole realistic world of the 1930s. Before writing these books, I, I had always thought I really didn't like the idea of doing research. I just wanted to get on and tell the story. But what I found with doing the research for these books that often I'd be reading about something and I'd come across something from the ear and I thought, wow, that would be great. I, I could really use that in, in my books. So so the, the research did, did turn out to be a very creative part of the process. Yeah, and I like the way that you've got strong female characters in the, the Bond books, which I guess is a little bit of a, a change from the originals too. Well, you say that, but actually, you know, there always was uh, at least one strong female character in each book. Now we call them Bond girls, and they be, the, the idea of the Bond girl is perhaps seen as being a little bit demeaning. But actually in the books, the, the, the females were quite 
often quite tough characters. They were always at the centre of the story and they always shared the adventures with um, with James Bond. So, you know, that side of it, I did, I did, you know, that the inspiration came from the books. But yes, it was important to me that that boys and girls would enjoy reading these books and also that it didn't put a put across an image of 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 girls that was shall we say old fashioned so having written these the series of uh, young book, bond books you then moved on to create your own characters um the books in the enemy series uh, and uh, now that this that series uh well as my son can uh, can uh, would agree with can be pretty gruesome but uh, so how did you make sure you were pitching it right for the audience that you were writing for well there there is no set of rules for what you can and can't write for for younger readers you have to sort of find out for yourself and also the conventions change a huge amount um you know before the before the new millennium the idea of sort of violence and action adventure books had 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 been completely sort of uh, taken out, um, uh, and I, and I think it was really that the writers like Anthony Horowitz with his Alex Ryder books and Robert Muchmore with his Cherub books, um, Owen Colfer to a certain extent with the Artemis Fowl about the sort of teenage criminal, uh, and probably for me the the sort of not exactly an inspiration, but a way a way of getting into it was through the Darren Shan, the Vampire's Assistant books, which my eldest boy absolutely devoured, and and I and I read some of them to sort of get an idea of the sort of stuff that was happening, and and there was a big change. There was a big change in in kids fiction, but still, probably my books were at the more extreme end. But but the only way I could I could judge was to read them as I was writing the first book. I, I I read out each chapter as I finished it as a bedtime story to my youngest boy, who was he was only ten at the time. He was probably a little bit young for the books. So I used him as a guinea pig to see how scared he would get and and how horrified and upset by the violence. And uh, it 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 it, uh, it took a long time to crack him. It was a hard nut to crack. I was getting more scared than he was. So I was having to make it scarier and scarier and gorier and gorier and more awful things were happening to these kids. And eventually one night I finished, went to bed. But about four in the morning, he came bursting into our bedroom, drenched in sweat and crying. And it turned out he'd had this really awful nightmare based on the books. And I thought, yes, I finally got him. So it was at that point I'd found the level for the books. I read somewhere that you kind of almost saw the books in the enemy series as like an antithesis to Lord of the Flies. Yes. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, they're similar because it's about kids in a world of other kids making their own rules. Um, and they can act in quite a, an unpleasant way with each other. But the overall message with the, with the books is that the kids will work together and join together and help each other. And, and work to defeat um, a common enemy. And, and you know, I, I think that is what happens if you see, because there's a lot of places in the world where through disease or warfare or whatever, you do find that there's, a, there's almost a whole generation of kids without parents, uh, often sort of living on the streets together, and they will form these quite tight-knit, very tough, strong communities. And I wanted that to be the message for, for kids reading these books, is that, you know, we're always told, and kids are always told, that they're awful and teenagers are terrible and, um, you know, the modern world is, is awful. Uh, but actually, you know, it's us adults who have created that world. And in the books, it's the adults who are the enemy. 
there's a huge cast of very different characters in the enemy books. And was that, did you have to work quite hard to keep each voice distinct for your audience? I did. And I tried very hard. And I, I did on the whole manage that because there's nothing worse when you're reading a book and it said, you know, and it says Andy came in and he'd lost a leg. And you're thinking, so which one was Andy again? And you have to flip back to the pages and think, oh, it's him. Okay, so I'm supposed to feel upset for him, am I? I did work very hard to try and make the characters as distinctive as possible. Do you have any plans to write any more series or perhaps more novels for adults? I would one day like to write um, some more adult novels, but I, I, I kind of haven't had, because I've been doing sort of YA and kids fiction for so long, my ideas have tended to stray in that direction. I'm working on a book at the moment that should be out next year, which is... Um, for slightly younger readers, and it's more of a of a comedy book. It's about a, a boy going on holiday, so it's about all the sort of things that have, that I remember happening to me on holiday and happening to kids that have come on holiday with our family. So I'm I'm enjoying doing something completely different. I'm also working on a huge long fantasy series. It's it's not in any it's not in any state to be published yet. <laughs> Okay, so normally we get our writers that we've been interviewing to read us an excerpt from their latest book. With Charlie, we interviewed him mainly because of his support for the reading agency and the Summer Reading Challenge, and he didn't have a new book that he was promoting. But we definitely wanted to share with you a part of one of his books that he's talked about. So we, uh, we enlisted the help, so to speak, of Kate's son Felix. As you've heard in the podcast, he was really inspired by Charlie Hickson's book and that really got him into reading. So he is the perfect person to introduce you to this book. The smell and noise and confusion of a hallway full of schoolboys can be quite awful at 20 past seven in the morning. The smell was the worst part. From this great disorderly mass rose the scent of sweat and sour breath and unwashed bodies mixing with the 200-year-old school odour of carbolic and floor polish. Boys, as a rule, don't notice bad smells. They've other things on their mind, but one boy did. He stood alone in the centre of all this chaos, while the torrent of excited youth barged past him and wished he was somewhere else. He wasn't used to these crowds, these numbers, this noise, this smell. He was a new boy, tall for his age and slim, with pale, grey-blue eyes and black hair that he had tried to brush into a perfect, neat shape, but, as usual, failed. One stray lock dropped down over his right eye like a black comma. A moment ago, the hallway had been empty, and the boy had been wondering where everyone was. But now it was alive with shouting pupils who streamed down the stairs and into the dining room. You boy! barked a voice, and the boy looked round. A man stood there glaring at him, and, despite the fact that he was short, Shorter even than some of the boys. He had an air of self-importance about him. Yes, sir? What's your name, boy? Bond. James Bond. James Bond, sir. Yes, sorry, sir. The man peered at him. He was short and stick-thin, with pale skin, deep-set blue-rimmed eyes, wiry grey hair and a very, very short black beard that covered nearly half his face. He reminded James a little of King George. Do you know who I am, Mr. Bond? He said coldly. I'm afraid not, sir. I just arrived. I am Mr. Codrose, your housemaster. I am to be your father, your priest and your god for the duration of your stay at this school. I should have met you yesterday evening, but some damned fool boy walked into the path of an automobile on Long Walk and I spent half the night in the hospital. I trust you saw the dame. Yes, sir. Good. 
Now you had best run along, or you will be late for early school. I will see you for a chat before supper. Yes, sir. James turned to walk away. Wait! Codrow stared at James with his cold fish eyes. Welcome to Eton, Bond. That's from the first chapter of Silverfin by Charlie Higson. Yeah, I was going to get Felix to read the prologue, um, but when I reread re it, I, w I found it absolutely terrifying. You can see how, how important it is for him to make it really scary for children, and goodness me it is. I thought, I'm not sure whether I really want that going out on the podcast, because we're going to give, we're going to give people nightmares. And what's the age group again that this one's pitched at? Well, it's, I would have said it is, um, I would have said a primary school age, but certainly at the, the upper level of primary school age. That was the age my son was when he read them. Okay, it's really interesting that we're talking about um, books being scary for children. Um, I mean, Charlie talks about this in his interview with you, how yeah. as soon as he had scared his, his young son, um, he knew that he'd nailed it. Yeah. Um, and in our Summer Reading Challenge special with Ali Sparks, she also discusses the importance of um, being scared as a young reader and how that almost prepares you a little mm. bit for life and the, the scary things that you might find as you grow up into an adult. So you might be reading a book about vampires or goblins or something like that, which of course you're not going to experience in real life. But, but that, I suppose, cathartic experience of having a scare apparently um, is meant to sort of prepare you a little bit for some of the things that you're going to face as you get a bit older. Yeah, because you're being slightly scared, but in a very safe environment. Yes, controlled. And I guess if you go back to the Brothers Grimm, the old traditional fairy tales, those really are quite scary and bleak. Exactly. In fact, they were so scary that it would probably put, you know, Silverfin. You'd probably think, well, actually, that's not scary <laughs> at all compared to some of those awful old Grimm's tales. Yeah. In the next section of the podcast, Kate will, as usual, be discussing three books with Hampshire Library staff. Well, this podcast, I've been inspired for my choice of books by an interview we've just done with bestseller Cara Hunter. And look out for that interview in an upcoming podcast. Cara's latest book, No Way Out, starts with a dramatic house fire. There's a few other books which have fire as part of the plot or as their title. There's The Dry by Jane Harper, an award-winning crime thriller set during one of Australia's worst droughts ever. Or there's Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I reckon that has to be in the top 10 of famous literary house fires, maybe along with Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Or is that a pot? Spoiler. I could have chosen Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury because apparently the book's title comes from the temperature that book paper catches fire. And I also really loved After the Fire by Henning Mankell, which again starts with a house fire. And there's a few much-loved book series which have a fiery theme. Uh, George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series, as well as Catching Fire by Suzanne Collins. And then, of course, there's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling, and The Girl Who Played with Fire by Stieg Larsson. Uh, in the end, I opted to read Celeste Ng's incendiary bestseller, Little Fires Everywhere, which came out last year. You'll hear what the team at Andover Library thought about the book in the next section of the podcast. Hello, with me today at Andover Library are two members of the library team here, Mandy Warner and Sue Chules. Mandy, I'm going to turn to you first. What's your book selection? My book selection today is The Salt Path, written by Raynor Wynne. The premise of the book is 
a, a, a true life story of um, a couple who own a small holding in Wales. Yeah. And something terrible happens, which means that they actually lose their home mm -hmm. due to going bankrupt and rotten investments and what have you. And it was the family home that they absolutely adored. And this all happens right at the beginning. It happens yeah. right at the very beginning. And it happens very, very quickly for them. And so at the same time, the husband, who has the most amazing name called Moth, um, is diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I have to admit that I thought as soon as I read that, yeah. It made me think that this book is going to have a, a very, very sad ending. And it's not until you get into the story that you realise that the terminal illness is actually still ongoing and without sort of giving anything away, nothing terrible, mm. least sad, happens at the end of the book, thank goodness. It's not sad. For me, it was incredibly uplifting. It was very inspiring. And to a certain degree, it made me think of all the ridiculous things that we moan about that go on in our own everyday lives. And this was real. You know, this, this actually happened to these people. I wept openly quite early in the book when the beloved sheep died. And I don't think it was so much the fact that the sheep had died. It was the fact that the sheep died on the morning that they were due to leave their home. And then it sort of becomes a bit more upbeat and they start it on their journey they have good days and they have bad days I actually know this coastline incredibly well so I think that's why I was drawn mm. to the book I love Cornwall I love walking that sort of coastal path and I know the vast majority of all the places the names of the places that are mentioned in the book but there was one particular instance where I thought that is so so horrible which was when they I think they went into Padstow and they had no money and they asked somebody to fill up their water bottle from the shop for them for free and the response was why would we want to do that when we can charge you a pound for a bottle and I immediately started thinking I know all of the cafes and ice cream shops in Padstow mm. and wonder which one it was and it just made me think slightly about sort of the commercialization of that particular town and then the generosity of some of the smaller places that they went through where people were just so more willing and kinder to them. I absolutely adored it. I'd happily read it again. I would love to know what happens next because I'm delighted, I hope, to say that this gentleman is still alive and just that the whole journey that they took with the struggles and the pain that he was in. There were times that they couldn't even afford to buy medication for him to, to ease his pain. Mm. And, and I, just, I just found it the most inspiring book. I think it also made, she made it clear the beauty of, yeah. the, so their surroundings, like, you know, the hardship of it was very clear, but also, and sometimes I felt almost envious of them that they had the sort of freedom yeah. of constraint of, a timetable and they could just sit and watch the sunset and experience the nature which I yeah. thought was beautiful the way she and the way she described it was really beautiful so she managed to get sort of the travelogue side of it mm. the issues the homelessness the way like you say the appalling way they were treated sometimes as opposed to the beautiful way they were treated sometimes mm. as well by people the kindness that they had there was lots, there were so many layers to yeah. it, I think. Yes, it did work very well as a kind of travel book, mm -hmm. but within the context of, of their lives that were going on. And there were some really interesting issues that she addressed of being homeless mm -hmm. and how, how people's 
attitude to them changed whether or not they thought they were homeless, which was a really interesting topic to go into. You could see the appeal for them of just keeping walking, I thought, that, yeah. that not coming back to the harsh reality of, yeah. because he got better as he was walking. Exactly, which, you know, the health benefits, obviously, yeah. mentally and whatever, yeah. that he kind of got better even under all those terrible circumstances. Mm. Okay, we've been talking about The Salt Path by Raina Wynn. Okay, Sue, I'm going to turn to your choice now. Uh, what did you pick? Well, mine's rather, rather a different sort of book. I chose Kate Atkinson's Behind the Scenes at the Museum, partly because she's one of my favourite authors. And this was her first novel. And what I find amazing about it is her distinctive writing style is there right from the very start. Um, it, I, I, I find completely it agree to you, with yeah. you. I found mm. that amazing going yeah. back to it. Fully, it seems fully formed totally. right from the start. Mm. And, and I find it just fizzes off the page. Um, it's funny, dramatic, sad, poignant and thought-provoking. Um, it won her the Whitbread Book of the Year award and, and I'm not surprised by that. Um, I think she has this ability to write extraordinarily long, complex sentences which twist and turn without losing their sense. But they often include wry humour, mm. um, which makes you sort of stop and smile, which is what I really like. Um, her style reminds me of another favourite author of mine, Charles Dickens, and I think people do often say her books are a bit like Charles Dickens. However, I don't find them um, preachy or worthy. They make you think and they make you care about the characters, yeah. but they are funny. She reveals her characters by taking you inside their minds to hear their every thought. Um, I just wanted to read a little bit by the narrator of... Yeah. Um, behind the scenes, which is Ruby Lennox. Um, and she begins the book with the words, I exist. She lives with her mother and father, George and Bunty and her three sisters in a flat above a pet shop in York. And she paints this amazingly vivid picture of her family and her home life, their frustrations, exasperations, secrets, hopes and fears, that you really feel that you know them. Her characters are always questioning. Ruby on the first page before she's even born asks if she'd be better off if her mother had had a different name, a plain Jane, a maternal Mary or something romantic, something that doesn't sound quite so much like a girl's comic. To me these uh, humorous asides give her books their distinctive style but also sort of mirror the way that well, I think can have these funny little thoughts that go through my head about yeah. random things during the day, which I, I just think is quite yeah, I interesting. Yeah, I feel that's how people's minds really do work. They don't yeah. work on linear. They do work on these yeah. asides that go off left, right and centre. Mm, yeah. yeah. Interspersed with Ruby's story, which involves a mystery, which is slowly uncovered, uh, chapters which take you through the generations to hear the stories of her ancestors, and these sections are very similar to um, her later wartime novels, Life After Life and The God in Ruins. They show how death is often random and how small, seemingly insignificant events can create a ripple through the generations. Mm. Um, I think this just makes it a very clever book. It juggles a really complex plot line and multiple vividly drawn larger-than-life characters, again, which I think is a bit like Dickens. They're all a bit... they're quite... Almost cartoonish. I'd never thought of that comparison, but actually it, it makes a lot of sense, yeah. Mm. Now, Mandy. <laughs> now, we obviously, Sue is a big fan, but I gather that you're not such a fan of this book. I have to say I, I was not a huge fan of the book. 
I thought if Sue has chosen this, then it's probably going to be something that I would enjoy. And I read the front cover and it said things like astounding, a masterpiece and enchanting. And I'm thinking I should obviously read this book years ago because it's, it's not a new book by any means. Because I was reading it to do the podcast, I thought I've really, really got to read this book. And I really, really struggled with it. One of the reviews said that it made me laugh out loud in certain places. I can honestly say I, it didn't make me laugh out loud at all in, in any. It might have made me had a, a little giggle at some point. Um, it makes me smile. It doesn't it, really make me laugh, but it's a sort of yeah, smart, a smile. Wry humour, maybe. Mm, yeah. but, uh, it, and I found it, I actually found it quite depressing in places. There's quite, there's a big... Um, Body count in a any huge Kate Atkins body count. Book. Yeah, I found the sort of the going back over the ancestors slightly confusing, and I'm not sure whether it was because I wasn't particularly enjoying the book. I found myself having to sort of keep flicking back again to remind myself about it's who very, certain it characters is very, were. Very complex, yeah. And I also found the footnotes that, that were referenced throughout the book. I just they I began to find those slightly irritating after a while. So I have to say, I'm so sorry to everybody that loved <laughs> Kate Atkinson's Behind the Scenes at the Museum. It, it wasn't for me. Luckily, I am in uh, Sue's camp and that, just like Sue, I read Behind the Scenes at the Museum when it first came out. And I absolutely loved it right from the start. And it was such a pleasure to go back to it after all this time. But she does have a very idiosyncratic style. But I, I love the humour. And I... I did laugh out loud at some of the bits. I silly little bits made me laugh about the sooty and sweet puppets. I was uh, I was laughing aloud, uh, and it is it's this tragedy comedy, a family saga narrated all the way through by the character Ruby, and it's all about the stories that go through families and the truths that are hidden and the mythology that we create, um, which I, I found absolutely fascinating. We've been talking about behind the scenes at the museum. I'm Kate Price McCarthy, and you're listening to the Hampshire Libraries podcast coming today from Andover Library. Okay, I'm now going to talk about my book choice, which is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, um, which I think came out last year. It's an American book. And... Um, when you start, you know right from the beginning how the novel is going to end um, with a massive six bedrooms of a family home ablaze started by the youngest of their children. And then the story dives back in time so you hear what events led up to this dramatic climax. So it's a good way of hooking you into the story. And the, the, the kind of central conflict of the story is between Mrs. Richardson, who owns this big family home, and she really embodies the life we're all supposed to aspire to, you know. She lives in this community called Shaker Heights, which is this very well-to-do suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. And she's in dramatic contrast with Mia, who's this rather drifting artist, single parent, who uh, rents a house from Mrs. Richardson with her very studious teenager, Pearl. And then... Running behind it then is this court case that goes on that affects all the characters' lives, divides them, divides opinion, divides loyalties. And it also kind of lays out the bones of a debate about race and parenthood. Uh, and it's a debate in which Ng, the, the author, 
make sure that everyone gets their point. So it's, you kind of side with one side with another. It's a, one of those issues that it isn't a clear-cut answer. So, Mandy, what did you reckon? I have to say I did enjoy Little Fires. Within the first few pages of the book, where it opens with the sort of the dramatics of this horrendous fire happening and Mrs Richardson standing outside in her dressing gown, I could see immediately what this neighbourhood looked like and it was sort of like the white picket fence and the, the manicured lawns and you could almost sort of smell cookies being baked and apple pie and it was it was so so American um, where everybody probably knows a little bit too much about everybody else's business and so that I already had that sort of picture in my in my mind and then we start to sort of go into to some of the characters you you do start to realize what sort of complex characters some of these children are towards the end of it I was sort of feeling there's a few questions that remain unanswered. I'm not entirely sure what happened to some of the characters mm. at the end of the book. And I found the, uh, it quite vivid about um, and sad about the fact that um, her relationship with her youngest daughter is difficult and you, find, you eventually find out why that is and it's not for the kind of the reasons that you might have mm. thought which is quite interesting. There's a lot of exploration of different styles of motherhood and how exactly. difficult it is and you know how mistakes I think there's a lot of um quite similar to behind the scenes as well isn't it that people make mistakes and they they ripple we've been talking about Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng published by Little Brown Book Group The Salt Path by Raina Wynne published earlier this year by Penguin and Behind the Scenes at the Museum by Kate Atkinson, published by Doubleday, all of which are available through Hampshire Libraries and through our free service, BorrowBox. Thanks for listening to Love Your Library, the Hampshire Libraries podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to hear other interviews and book recommendations. We'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts. We'll always read and respond to any questions or suggestions. And do let us know if you've read and enjoyed, or like Mandy, hated any of the books we've talked about and it would be great if you'd rate and review our podcast on itunes as this helps other people to find us don't forget to come and see us you'll always be welcomed whether you're taking part in the summer reading challenge getting advice on your next read or just finding a peaceful place to read a book the best thing you can do to support your local library is to use it i'm kate price mccarthy and i'm mary stone <laughs>